Colonel Blake. Henry. Yeah. Charlie here. Yeah. I have a report here, Henry, from your uh, from your chief nurse, Major O'Houlihan. She makes some accusations, Henry. I, I find pretty hard to believe. Subliminal SF visual and auditory mind control brings you the best, coolest t-shirt and hoodie designs and mind-bending local bands and shows at venues all over San Francisco and the Bay Area. Subliminal SF is here to destroy your sense of normalcy and plant ideas in your skull to make you cooler and a more awesome person. Check out all the badass products at subliminalsf.myshopify.com. That's subliminalsf.myshopify.com. And experience Subliminal SF. The Ministry of Lava manages our national lava resources to ensure that we will always have a steady supply of lava to operate the nation's active volcanoes, which in turn power our cities and methamphetamine labs. As a matter of national security, we need to reduce our dependence on foreign lava, which means an expansion of domestic lava drilling. As your chancellor, I will build lava wells all over the country, as well as secure access to more lava fields by invading Hawaii. Imagine orange gold spurting out from school playgrounds on the Great Plains and illuminating the Nebraska sky like fireworks on the 4th of July. Magma oozing over the rolling hills of Kentucky. Volcanic ash settling gently over homes in New England like fresh gray snow. Global lava markets to continue to be dominated by terriblest regimes like Iceland, Chile, and the Philippines. Vote for my opponent, who sits in their back pocket as comfortably as Pahoehoe on the slopes of Kilauea. If you want the United States to stay competitive in the era of peak lava and beyond, then take a chance on the Chancellor. Tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft? Thank you. 
just enough stretch and send a prayer up for your kids and family to be safe, be strong, and be healthy. And one day that they be set free, but right now you got a whole house of mouths to be. Time is really running thin. Can you fit a breakfast in? Lucky if you see your kids deeper, take this moment in. and on your way off you go another day gotta be on time today and update that resume because this recession is a test they're making cuts now they want more for less if you start to feel that extra stress just do your best and leave the rest our ancestors did it too somehow they all made it through something that we all must do keep hope alive keep hope alive you'll make it too and in case nobody told you on your job today, and in case they didn't tell you on your job today, Las Cafeteras would like to say thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. To mothers who sacrifice to make ends meet. Thank you. To fathers who faithfully take care of their seeds. The food you harvest keeps us alive. Thank you. To teachers training their students to excel and survive. Thank you. From cooks, waiters, and bakers for our daily bread. To TAs, assistants, and those teaching special ed. Bus drivers getting us to work on time. For DJs, breakers, writers, and MCs who rhyme. Students with two jobs hitting those books at night. And the organizers bringing us together to fight. The little ones doing their chores and homework. And all those under and unemployed looking for work. Factory workers, migrants from distant lands. South Central farmers teaching us to work with the land. Construction workers building up the world with their hands. These days time passes faster than the quickest of sands. and sweatshops, street vendors on each block, spiritual leaders and sweats, hot heat cleanses like detox, those working against addiction, fighting against eviction, the culture workers, musicians and artists on a mission to transform our community with care and conviction, to single parents making miracles each week, and to our elders for the truth and the courage you speak, to ancestors whose hard work paved the way, and to everyone who's out there doing labor today, to my indigenous people and our creator too, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you, so thank you.
You are something else. Miss Bonnie, come on now. This is very special to have you here with me. And we're gonna do one more for you. And then I may get some of these guests out here to rock a little bit with me.
And good morning, everybody out there. Rather lengthy opener for that one. Feliz Día de Independencia a todos. Viva México, viva la Virgen de Guadalupe. Muere a los cachupines. Mexican Independence Day is celebrating September 16th when a priest named Miguel Hidalgo stood on a balcony in a little town called Dolores and delivered the words that started the Mexican Revolution against Spain. So to celebrate that, we played that last one, a beautiful version by Rye Cooter, the Cancion Mixteca, the classic song of someone who's outside of their country, Mexico, and they think of it with such emotion. Quisiera llorar, I want to cry. Quisiera morir, I want to die. to be in Mexico again, to see Mexico. And uh, the one before that was uh, kind of a sarcastic one, Tennessee. Um, over the weekend, I ran into some people who were just fed up with California. They just couldn't stand California because uh, Gavin Newsom was letting... Um, all the rapists out of jail, and um, they wanted to go to somewhere where it was safe, and they decided they were going to move to Tennessee, and I wish them Godspeed. By the way, congratulations to Gavin Newsom for his crushing defeat of the weird kind of California recall system. Nothing like it in the rest of the country. If Newsom had failed to poll uh, 50% of people who voted, the next highest person, even if he was only at 15 or 20%, would have become governor, which is what happened when we got Arnold for our governor, a man who kind of thought it was kind of a lark to run for governor and be governor at any rate. Uh, Newsom prevailed in this case. <clears throat> the first one was a little more reminiscent, a little more about what this show is about, Labor and Love Radio, a group called Las Cafeteras, who some who were and some who were not uh, musicians got together at Cal State Northridge and formed a group called Las Cafeteras. And their song was Trabajador, Trabajadora, in honor of their parents, worker, man worker and woman worker, in honor of their parents who struggled to give them a better life. You're listening to Labor and Love Radio, by the way. This is the B, a.k.a. Bill Morgan, and... We're with you every Saturday morning from 10 to 12. Working the day shift, 
the Saturday shift, are we getting paid double time? I don't think so. <laughs> Tune in to Labor and Love Radio on Mutiny Radio is the name of our network, and we're headquartered down here at 2781 21st Street in the Mero Mero, the heart of the Mission District, a true community arts center where we've got art installations. We've got radio, live radio like you've never heard, Mutiny Radio. We've got comedy. Mutiny is the unofficial headquarters of the underground comedy scene in San Francisco. Every week, two or three chances for you to get up in front of an audience, an appreciative audience, and do your, do your thing, do your comedy routine. It will be critiqued positively and then critiqued in what you could do to improve. So come on down to Mutiny. It's on the corner of 21st and Florida. You can step right in. Come on down to Mutiny and find your voice. So yes, it is Mexican Independence Day, the 16th of September, and our show is going to feature a collection called Rolas de Aztlan. What's a rola? What's Aztlan? <laughs> a little more on that later, but a series, it's an album of uh, Songs of the Chicano Movement. We're going to have other things as well. I have some music by La Doña, a local singer from an illustrious uh, music and um, organizing family. The passing of Yolanda Lopez. Do you know who Yolanda Lopez is? One of the most influential. American artists of her time. What's happening with the new farm worker bill anyway? There's a new farm worker bill. David Bacon breaks that down. Sounds like it's good for the growers and not for the workers. How could that be? I want to play another song by Brother Charlie Morgan, who uh, unfortunately passed away the 1st of August. His memory lingers. And um, just a whole lot of other stuff. This is Labor and Love Radio. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, a negotiating table, where you work, you're on the menu. Sorry. And never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. And when I say labor, I mean you. Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. Or as Bill Haywood said, when someone asked him if he had read Karl Marx, he said, no, I haven't read Karl Marx, but I've got the marks of capitalism all over me. 
All right, let's get on with it. Let's. How about some radio labor? We haven't had radio labor since uh, summer, July sometime, I believe. And they've returned now, although in an abbreviated form. So let's see what they've got for us. Solidarity News on Radio Labor. This is a Radio Labor report recorded on Thursday, September 16th, 2021. I'm Mark Belanger. Colombia is one of the most dangerous countries in the world to be a trade unionist. Since the mid-1980s, between three and 4,000 union leaders have been killed. But the labor movement is still alive and fighting back even harder. To find out about recent events, the Solidarity Center in the United States featured one of Colombia's top labor leaders in its podcast. The Solidarity Center is the largest international labor rights organization in the U.S. The host of the podcast is the director of the center, Shauna Baderblau. When the Colombian government moved to give wealthy corporations and rich individuals huge tax breaks while raising taxes on working people this year... Workers and their unions led hundreds of thousands of people in a national strike that surged across more than 600 cities. My guest today is someone who has spent his life on the front lines with workers, fighting for good jobs and a society that treats everyone with fairness. Francisco Maltez is president of the CUT, the Unitary Workers Center, the largest trade union confederation in Colombia. The CUT has played a key role in the protests as part of the National Strike Committee, a coalition of major unions, students, and groups representing marginalized people across the country. Francisco Maltese, president of CUT Colombia, welcome to the podcast. Muchas gracias. Muy amables por la invitación. It's so wonderful to talk with you today. Congratulations on your recent election to president of CUT, the largest union federation in Colombia. Can you start by telling us a little bit about your history in the labor movement? Thank you again. I am actually a public employee. I work in the district tax office in Bogota, which is the capital of Colombia. I've been wor working as a public employee for a long time, and I've been working even longer in the fight for unions um, and in the political sphere over 40 years. Brother Francisco, can you tell us a little bit briefly about the coup in Colombia uh, what are the goals of your labor federation? La CUT es la organización sindical de tercer grado más grande. CUT is the largest among union organizations. We have over 800,000 affiliates among different branches of the economy, including the public sector and transport and the agricultural industrial sector. And our goal is to defend the interests of both workers and all Colombians. And as such, we have uh, taken, a, taken a leader, a leading role in the um, current social movement in Colombia. We started to see a decline in social indicators in 2019, so before the pandemic. Unemployment reached double digits, informal work increased, and there were 1.3 million new people in poverty 
which was 10% of the population. In 2020, 3.5 million new poor were added to the statistics, uh, leaving 42% of Colombians in poverty. Dropout rates in school increased, and almost 9 million people had stopped eating a third meal every day. And as far as work, there are 4 million people unemployed, which is 20% of the population. 52% of the population works informally, leading to systematic violations by both the government and the private sector of workers' rights to negotiation. And so the ILO has included Colombia among the worst violators of labor rights in the world. You can listen. Solidarity News on Radio Labor. This is a Radio Labor report recorded on Wednesday, September 15th, 2021. I'm Mark Bologna. It's a sad reality that we pay people more to look after animals in the zoo than we pay them to look after children in a nursery. That is Christina McEnany, the General Secretary of Unison, the largest labor union in the United Kingdom. She was speaking in a webinar organized by the British Trades Union Congress about the effect of the pandemic on women workers and what must be done. The unequal impact of COVID-19 on women has been very stark. Women have actually borne the brunt of this pandemic. We ran a survey in Unison and it just shows just how true that is. And in over just over two days, 47,000 women participated in that survey. Women desperate to tell their stories, share their experiences. And it told the story of loneliness, disconnection, isolation, and indeed the impact of what the pandemic was doing for their working life. It showed a deep-seated fear of catching the virus and giving it to a relative or a loved one. And it also highlighted the physical toll of the pandemic about people not sleeping well or taking regular breaks. But it also showed an increase in issues around domestic violence and a rise, a genuine rise in discrimination against pregnant women and women with children and other caring responsibilities. Women in all jobs have ended up juggling work and caring responsibilities, expected to do more than ever with the same number of hours in the day and quite often for lower pay. But of course, the pre-pandemic picture wasn't actually that much better. With inflexible work too often that saw women disproportionately having to cut their hours, take unpaid leave to cover childcare and elder care, and of course, see the impact that had on their progression. And then, of course, there's the whole issue of low paid. It doesn't have to be like that. Stronger employment rights, greater flexibility and a decent childcare system would help us all to better balance our lives, whatever our circumstances. And change is absolutely imperative if we want to kickstart our economy after this crisis. And there are some key changes to the laws that would make a huge difference to women in this country and women in the workplace. Right at the start of the pandemic, Unison lobbied MPs about concerns about the restrictions brought in by the Coronavirus Act. We called for guaranteed parental leave for the duration of the crisis. We called for the extension of statutory sick pay 
And when you look at what happened in some sectors, that was particularly uh, important. And a temporary increase in statutory sick pay rate, which would disproportionately benefit low-paid workers, predominantly women and black workers. And we need day one rights for all staff to be able to work flexibly and at least have 10 days parental leave to make a significant difference in the workplace. COVID yet again has shown the acute shortage of accessible and affordable childcare. And so we've also called on the government for an urgent cash injection to ensure that affordable childcare is universally available and for additional funding targeted at provision for children from low-income households. One of the other key issues I think that we should be considering is this decision by the government to delay gender pay gap reporting by another six months after already suspending it for a year in February. It shows we've got a huge problem about how this government views gender equality. If there's no measurement of how much wider the gap has become during COVID, we're never going to be able to hold employers to account. We need to restore gender pay gap reporting, but it's not enough just to report the size of the gap. We need proper action plans that, can, that have to be mandatory, and we also believe small employers should also have to report on this. But improving legal rights is just half the story. Most of all, we need to make sure women's voices are at the heart of shaping what comes out of the other side of COVID. And that's it. International labour news you can use. You can find our features and daily newscasts at radiolabor.net. Follow us on Twitter at Radio Labor. I'm Mark Bonanche. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity. Okay, that was uh, our feature, our weekly feature. Radio Labor, Labor News from all around the world, as they say, Labor News you can use. Let's take a look at some things that are happening around the country. This one is from popularresistance.org, and it, it outlines a strike, a struggle between two writers unions <clears throat> and it starts like this the writers guild of america east wgae has successfully organized digital journalism workers at numerous well-known outlets in the past several years winning contract protections on things like requiring just cause for firing diversity hiring and editorial independence. Who could complain about this? Plenty of people, apparently. The union's governing council is going through an election split between the Solidarity Slate, which includes both digital journalistic writers and TV film writers who defend the organizing drive, and the Inclusion and Experience Slate, which believes that the organizing drive has steered the union away from its original mission of representing long unionized film and TV writers. Okay. 
the the key problem here, the key what do we call contradiction? Okay, the key contradiction is between industry and craft unionism. Industry and craft. Industrial union is the idea that the union should represent all workers in an industry. Think of New York City subway and bus workers, nearly all of whom, regardless of their skill set or wage, ranging from station cleaners to subway train operators, are in the same bargaining unit as the transport workers union. So we have what's called a horizontal organizing plan. You spread out and organize all the workers in a certain industry. Craft union is something else. Craft unions where unions are, rep are organized and closed off by their specific trades. Think of a construction site where the plumbers, electricians, sheet metal workers, and truck drivers are all in their own separate unions. Craft unions like those in the building trades can more or less define who can take on a certain job, often by limiting how many people can become a unionized craft worker. A union can ensure that all of its members get enough work and keep wages high. Letting anyone take on a certain job title spreads everything too thin the idea goes. They're more about excluding people. They want a certain group of trained workers who can do a certain craft and they the work belongs to them. It's based on exclusion. The idea of cross-title solidarity that the solidarity slate is promoting isn't just about bringing as many members as possible into the union. It's also the hope that democratic unionism can inspire more democratic and open media workplaces because so much of the industry is based on nepotism, going to the right school and knowing the right people. So familiar with this, with fathers passing on union benefits and membership to their son, getting their sons in, getting their daughters in. Rather than mutually exclusive choice, the union could choose to expand in all areas. He cites, check this out on popular resistance. Have the idea of the Historically, the uh, AFL, which was composed of craft unions, as opposed to something like the IWW, which was interested in organizing all the work into one biggie. <clears throat> now, this is the clash. On the verge of a strike, this is from Labor Notes, Washington carpenters fight union leaders for a wage hike. This is often a problem. The 
the rank and file is at odds with its administrators. Let's see how this goes. After narrowly rejecting a contract offer, the union representing 11,600 working carpenters in Washington State is set to start a strike tomorrow. It's the fourth offer the members have nixed four times now. A scrappy band of rank-and-filers known as the Peter J. McGuire Group organized the no-vote over inadequate raises, despite pressure from union leaders who were promoting the deal. They are also seeking reimbursements for high parking costs, increased employer contributions to health care and pension funds, and stronger sexual harassment protections. Northwest Carpenter members voted down the latest tentative area master agreement with the Associated Contractors by 56%. Strike could be the union's largest since 2003 when 8,000 members in Washington struck for more, <clears throat> struck for nine days over health care benefits. Union was unclear about how many workers would actually be on strike. Most work site employing carpenters are exempted under project labor agreements with no strike clauses. Yeah, well, when you deal away your right to strike, uh, that's your ultimate weapon. Um, ultimately, you'll have to take whatever the company offers you. And the company knows that, of course. So check it out. It's about the soaring cost of living, what we're all facing. It's on labor notes. And it's on the verge of a strike, Washington carpenters fight for a wage hike. All right, let's get some music, and we'll talk about what, it is, what the word Chicano means. Yo soy Chicano.
vivan, que vivan Raza, los barrios unidos Raza, que vivan, que vivan Raza, los barrios unidos Raza, que vivan, que vivan Raza, los barrios unidos Raza, que vivan, que vivan Raza, los barrios unidos Raza, que vivan, que vivan Okay, there you have it. Those were three songs from an album called Rosa, Rolas de Aztlán. Songs of Aztlán. What's Aztlán? Listen up. So first, the, the last one we played was Chicano Park Samba, and I had the good fortune to visit Chicano Park in San Diego last week. And uh, the narrative tells what's going to happen. There was a struggle between the neighborhood, Logan Heights in San Diego, and the city of San Diego and the state of California, which wanted to use this area under a freeway for a highway patrol station. The people in the community decided they wanted to have a park there, as the guy says, without... It was by uh, Los Alecranes Mojados, by the way. That they wanted to have a park where kids could play and those viejitos, the old people could sit there in the sun. Families could gather, picnics, demonstrations, rallies, etc., etc. In other words, a place for the whole community to use. And eventually they went out. Chicano Park is there today. It's a beautiful place. Talk about uh, paintings and murals. Um, beautifully decorated and at the same time useful. People are there using it. It's a neighborhood place for everyone in the neighborhood. Chicano Park Samba, that was called. Chicano, now what's a Chicano? Okay, I'll, I'll try in my own humble way to try to describe it. Um, a Chicano is someone from a um, Mexican family or other Latino countries, different countries, <clears throat> where... Spanish is spoken in countries that were colonized by the West, where the people maintain their identity as Indians, part Indian, okay? Chicanos see themselves as a mix between the Spanish and the Indian, the mestizos. And they see themselves as a nation. A Chicano is aware of a Chicano nation. And on what does he base that in? Well, a poet named Alurista, very famous Chicano poet, wrote a poem claiming that there was a place called Aztlan in the ancient Aztec chronicles 
it says that the people, the Aztec people, migrated south, eventually getting to the Valley of Mexico. But on the way, they passed through a place called Aztlan, and several of their people settled there. Well, look at it. I mean, if they came down from the north, they must have crossed through California. They must have crossed through the whole southwest. So Chicanos claim their heritage as being the first people here in the American Southwest, land that was later ripped off from Mexico under threat of uh, occupation after the war on Mexico in 1848 by the U.S. It was a treaty signed by, called Guadalupe Hidalgo, in which uh, Mexico ceded about half its territory the states of 11 U.S. that are U.S. states now, Colorado, Texas, Arizona, California, Nevada, New Mexico, others, others as well, about 11 states for the price of $15 million. <laughs> Talk about a deal. And as I say, it was... It was under um, threat. It was under threat of occupation. American troops had occupied Mexico City and they threatened to stay there if this treaty wasn't signed. Uh, there were a lot of forces in Mexico, mainly among the working people and the farmers and the farm workers, wanted to continue the war. But the Mexican upper classes, the church, and the well-to-do, the nobles, uh, did not want to have campesinos and workers going around in Mexico with guns. <laughs> they were afraid that they might challenge the status quo, which they did in the Mexican Civil War about 10 years later under the leadership of Benito Juarez. Um, so, one of the provisions of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo was that people who were Mexican citizens before the treaty and became American citizens had language rights. This implied there would be bilingual classes where teachers spoke Spanish as well as English. That never happened on any large scale until the 1960s, 70s, etc. So Chicano implies a political identity as well as an ethnic one. Yes, you're Indian, yes, you're Mexican or Latino. You live here in the U.S., but you are also a Chicano. You'll see some people who want to be called Chicanos and some people who want to be called Mexican-Americans and some people who don't even <clears throat> relate to either of those. But that's the point. That's the idea of Chicanismo and Aztlan. So that first song, the last 
song we played was the Chicano Park Samba, Pelos Alecranes, Mojados. For that, we had a song that'll forever be associated with the United Farm Workers Movement in the 1970s, which was the basis of a lot of Chicano power in the Southwest. Um, de colores, por eso los grandes amores de muchos colores me gustan a mí. Great loves composed of many colors make me happy. And um, before that was Yo Soy Chicano by Los Alvarados. And this is all connected with the great Chicano Civil Rights Movement, which began in the late 60s and continues to now. In fact, one organizer, one writer, said that the battle between the Spanish conquistadores, the West and capitalism, and the native cultures in Mexico, in the Americas, is still going on. Imagine that. Well, let's take a look at something that has to do with Chicanos, Chicanismos, farm workers. There's an article in El Tacalot, El Reportero, one of the two uh, papers you can pick up in the mission. The other is called El Tecolote. Um, David Bacon writes in El Reportero, if the Senate passes and President Biden signs the Farm Workforce Modernization Act, U.S. growers and labor contractors will benefit, but most farm workers will not. Now, this is something that's been going on since before the, before the missionaries came. As this became a problem when the missionaries came and wanted to take land for the church and have the natives work the land. Um, and we've never gotten it right. For years and years and years and years, farm workers, a lot of them Mexican, but also Japanese, Chinese, Filipinos, etc., etc., whites, have worked the land at starvation wages. The big growers, California from the very beginning developed big farms. Big growers want to drive workers' wages as low as they can so they can make more money for themselves. Um, This was the spur to a lot of labor organizing beginning back at the turn of the century, even before that. Into the 30s, where there were huge cotton strikes, um, strikes against the Giorgio Corporation, and finally the United Farm Workers with Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta. David Bacon writes, 
There should be no question that undocumented farm workers need and deserve legal status in this country. They have fed us, not just during the pandemic, as long as we've had wage labor in agriculture. But farmers, along with other undocumented families, need and deserve a bill that provides legal status without imposing the notorious H-2A and E-Verify programs as the price. Growers need labor. Farm workers need a sustainable future that promises dignified and well-paid work, not just for this generation, but for generations to come. And uh, David Bacon is a renowned photographer, reporter on all things at the border. Workforce age three, that's what I'm looking for. This bill's torturous legislation will not help. Denying jobs to hundreds of thousands of farm workers will cause immense suffering for their families. This would be a bitter reward for feeding the country during the COVID crisis. Those who qualify for legalization will be required to continue working in the agriculture for a period of years. So you got to work steady. Losing employment will therefore mean losing their temporary legal status, making it extremely risky for them to organize unions or strike. Growers, meanwhile, will use the H-2A program to replace domestic workers who can't legalize or who leave the workforce for other reasons, including local workers organize and strike. There are no protections in the bill for all farm workers' right to organize, either for H-2A workers or workers who are living here. H-2A workers are the equivalent of braceros, uh, people who come here and work and then go home. This is a very threatening scene, Mr. Scenario, farm worker families. Amelia Torres, president of Familias Unidas, Ana Justicia says. Okay, so check it out um, and keep your eye on it. Um, the bill is called Farm Workforce Modernization Act, but it sounds just like another way to regulate. Uh, farm workers and keep them on the defensive so they don't have the wherewithal to strike without losing their legal status. Not much. Okay, I want to do some um, pay tribute to some labor leaders. Is one about Martin Luther King speaking about labor. 
while future AFT President Sandra Feldman helped to organize the March on Washington, busloads of union members traveled to Washington to participate. AFT leadership kept in close contact with civil rights leadership, Martin Luther King Jr., Bayard Rustin, and A. Philip Randolph. Our needs are identical with labor's needs. I've known Al Shanker since the very early days when I was working with Martin Luther King. I think he was on every major demonstration in the South. He was always there with money and help and people when we needed them. There was a feeling of, we can change the world. It's important that this truckload of money, this truckload of supplies, or this group of people get on a plane or a train and go someplace to sit in, go someplace to conduct the Freedom Rides, and it will make a huge difference. And in fact, it did make a huge difference. She was not only a labor organizer, she was a leader in the suffrage movement, ensuring that laws were more democratic and protected more people way ahead of her time. Eighteen ninety-eight, New York, New York. Sixteen-year-old Rose Schneiderman worked as a seamstress in a hat-making factory. Many of the garments were produced in sweatshops. There was no such thing as an eight-hour day. If the employer said, "I need this number of garments produced by the end of the day," people just stayed and worked. When a fire destroyed the factory, the employer forced Schneiderman and her fellow workers to buy new sewing machines out of their own paychecks. It just infuriated her and set her on her course towards seeing that unions were the only solution. We were helpless. No one girl dared stand up for anything alone. It dawned on me that we girls needed an organization. Rose Schneiderman was born in 1882 in Savin, Poland, to Jewish parents. The family moved to New York when Schneiderman was about five years old in one of the largest waves of immigration in U.S. history. Two million or so East European Jews started migrating in about the 1870s into the 1920s. Most of them came because of the economic possibilities in the garment industry. Like many Jewish immigrants, the Schneidemans took up residence in the tenements of the Lower East Side. These apartments were crammed with people. Disease was rife, very poor sanitation. It was a pretty grim life. In 1903, Schneiderman formed an all-women's chapter of a hatmakers union and later joined the newly founded Socialist Party of America. In the garment industry, men and women work together, which had a very profound impact on the consciousness of women because they could see they were producing the same number of garments as the male worker next to them, and they were getting a lower pay. In 1905, Schneiderman led a citywide nonviolent strike against pay inequality 
that resulted in raises for women hatmakers. Each boss does the best he can to squeeze his workers to the last penny. We must stand together to resist. This brought her to the attention of a group of white, middle-class, mostly Christian women who had already formed the Women's Trade Union League. And they saw she was a natural leader. Women have always been on the front lines of the labor movement. It's just that we haven't always been recognized in that leadership role. My name is Ai-Jen Poo, and I'm the director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance. I started my organizing in the 90s, and I just thought this growing low-wage service economy was where many immigrant women, especially women of color, were working. And so if we were going to change things, we would have to start there. And we came together in 2001 across all these different communities to start organizing. Schneiderman's efforts to organize women in the garment industry helped build momentum for the 1909 Uprising of the 20,000. They were demanding wages, predictable hours, and some level of control over the work environment. Wealthy members of the Women's Trade Union League, popularly known as the Mink Brigade, picketed alongside garment workers to help curb police violence. They get on the front pages of the newspapers, and their cause becomes everyday news in the city of New York. The 11-week strike resulted in most garment factories signing protocols to improve work conditions and safety standards. However, some of the factories didn't sign the protocols. One of the worst industrial accidents in U.S. history was a fire at the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory in 1911. It killed nearly 150 garment workers. Most of the women died because the doors were locked from the outside and they jumped out the windows. For Roche Schneiderman, the fire was not just an abstract tragedy. She knew people who had been killed. This is not the first time girls have been burned alive in the city. Every week, I must learn of the untimely death of one of my sister workers. Too much blood has been spilled. Realizing that working women needed more than unions to gain political power, Schneiderman co-founded the Wage Earners League for Women's Suffrage in 1911. It was an effort to take the issues of socialism and feminism to say that the two have to be pursued together. She gives this powerful speech which gives the women's labor movement the imagery of we're working for bread, our wages, but we're working for roses, our human dignity. What the woman who labors wants is the right to live, not simply exist. The worker must have bread, but she must have roses too. Help give her the ballot to fight with. Her rallying cry remains one of the most indelible mottos of the American labor movement. Bread and roses, bread and roses. Her enemies, essentially the manufacturers and the conservative trade unionists, saw how effective she was and tried to smear her. 
New York State granted women the vote in 1917. Through her suffrage work, Schneiderman met fellow labor organizer Maud O'Farrell Swartz. They began a 25-year friendship. Historians have been pondering what the nature of that relationship was. Many single women who didn't marry were involved with other women and relationships, which later generations may say, ah, they were lesbians. But I don't think anybody really knows. In 1918, Schneiderman became president of the New York branch of the Women's Trade Union League and its national president in 1926. She served in both positions, organizing women workers until her retirement in 1949. The next really important development in her life was she met Eleanor Roosevelt, which brings Rose Schneiderman in contact with Franklin Roosevelt. And he turns to Schneiderman as one of his advisors. When he became president of the United States in 1933, FDR appointed Schneiderman as the only woman on his New Deal Labor Advisory Board. She realized that the issues of labor and workers' rights cannot be settled outside of the political arena. It wasn't enough to negotiate with the boss of this factory or that factory. It required systematic restructuring of society. Schneidman played an important role in shaping New Deal legislation during the Great Depression, including laws for minimum wage, the eight-hour workday, and the right of workers to unionize. It thrills me that I had a part in bringing about monumental changes in the lives of working men and women. From 1937 to 1944, Schneiderman served as New York State's Secretary of Labor, where she advocated equal pay for women and protections for domestic and service workers. When labor laws were put into place in the 1930s, farm workers and domestic workers were explicitly excluded. She played a role in ensuring that laws protected more groups of people. Right now, we have passed legislation in nine states and just introduced a national domestic worker bill of rights into Congress that will offer some of the basic protections that the rest of us take for granted. Real investments in training, protection from sexual harassment and discrimination, paid time off, including national holidays. It will be a challenge to pass this law, but the beautiful thing is that it is inspiring workers all over the country to stand up and get involved. In 1961, Schneiderman attended the 50th anniversary commemoration of the Triangle Factory Fire. She died in 1972 at age 90. Rose Schneiderman wanted to change the world. The kind of America which develops out of the New Deal really owes her. It was women like Rose Schneiderman who transformed jobs during that industrial moment, where people were literally dying in factories and created an era of generational prosperity. That's what organizers do, democratize power. I know from experience it is up to the working people to save themselves. And the only way they can save themselves is by a strong working class movement.
San Antonio, Texas, in the 1930s, was a bustling city with a vibrant Spanish-speaking community. But as the Great Depression swept the nation, the city's underlying economic and racial inequalities became more pronounced. Workers across many industries struggled to earn living wages under poor working conditions. Then, one determined young woman stepped in and helped to set things right. Emma Tenayuca was a Latina labor activist who understood how to stand up to injustice. When she was a young girl, she listened to public speakers addressing her community. As a high school junior, she participated in her first strike. Her empathy for the plight of the workers led her to join the Communist Party and the Workers' Alliance of America. Through her work, Emma developed a reputation for effective organizing. In 1938, she and her colleagues set out to help the Pecan Shelling Union. 40% of the nation's pecans were shelled in Texas, and most of the shellers were women. Pecan shelling factories were poorly ventilated, which led to severe respiratory illnesses in workers. Under Emma's guidance, 12,000 pecan shellers went on strike, demanding higher wages and better working conditions. Emma led demonstrations and spoke at rallies. She was so successful in drawing attention that she eventually stepped out of the spotlight and worked behind the scenes. She wanted the focus on the workers, not on her. She made the right choice. The pecan shellers earned a wage increase. But Emma's success made her a target. In 1939, a violent anti-communist mob attempted to attack her while she led a party meeting. She only survived by escaping through a secret passageway in the building. In the 1940s, Emma even found herself under FBI surveillance. National distress of communists was so great that federal agents spied on her and blocked her from government service during World War II. But Emma was a brave and passionate woman who refused to be silenced. She continued to protest, mentor, educate, and fight for workers' rights until her death in 1999. Emma Tenayuca showed the world that a young woman of color could make a real difference through activism and persistence. Three examples there of uh, labor history, I suppose. We talk about Emma Tenayuca, who organized pecan workers in San Antonio, Texas, later moved to San Francisco, under threat of death, by the way, by the Ku Klux Klan and the local right-wing people wanted to say something else, but I didn't. She went to San Francisco, became a teacher, and eventually moved back to uh, San Antonio. Rose Schneiderman was one of the organizers who changed the work and the workplaces of so many, mostly young women who worked in garment factories. And before that, we had King, and King, with his very simple statement, rea realized that labor's, labor's goals and the goals of black 
civil rights organizations were the same. Right. So I wanted to play a song. We had a request here. It's by Duck Doja. Duck Doja is a young man, not a young man anymore. I remember when he was young. But uh, <clears throat> his name is Darnell Coleman. I'm going to look for his uh, song here. Loosen up a little too. tell you daddy I ain't some mangy mutt I want a diamond studded collar for when I want to strut my doghouse needs wallpaper it's looking like a dump and when I bark and wag my tail you know I'd better see you jump whoa Nobody loves me but my dog. Whoa, and she says she's barking up the wrong tree. Oh, no. She's going to take this old bone, Charles Morgan. Ain't no meat left on it, and you know she's going to bury me. Then she tried to finish me off. I've seen some other boy dogs out there who run it hard and fast. They've been checking out my wagon tail when I've been walking past. You know, you run out. No, that was not Miles Davis. <laughs> that was Robert Charles Morgan. And I've got Duck Doja here. A young man named Darnell, well, not a young man. He buys man. so many different things on lock. Like I say, uh, when I knew him, he was a young man, but it so happens today is birthday. It's called Trapped in the Hood. I'm dipped in candy And girl, you look so good Me and you can go together like leather and wood Or eat the peanut butter and jelly She's a go-getter, I keep her working out the telly I gotta keep me a turf chick Can't stay dripping cause I'm wet like a shirt stick And I can satisfy your sweet tooth You can ride, baby, just as long as you bring loot So sexy and so cute Plays innocent, but she ain't, I know the truth 
She ain't done before On the Hollywood strip Straight manipulating stars I keep a proper young rapper Always handy with bars First came the foes Then she went and candy my car Courtesy of her, him make him speak good. From the jewels to the paint to the rims, dry Mac and never make it rain on him. Check this forecast, I get it out of whore's ass fast with the quickness. Bless our rag, got a hood off top. Somebody got a hate to gorilla pill, thumb on her back like an eight two. Ooh, ooh, ah, we go hard on them raws. Wanna ride with a real Zilla nigga? I charge for the hour one, for the half. Wanna fuck? My price rise like gas. Back to my cat, I like with the slap in the back. Got me slumping the drunk, quick him up. Let me turn up my black. Yeah, I need some get back. Keep begging me to hit that. I give you what you want. Just bring my chips back. Yeah, bitch, I'm wet. You wanna be my pet? Yeah, bitch, I bet. If they ain't choosing, they losing. Exploit them on the blade, and then I mentally abuse them. Never have one in their corner that can stash cake. Mommy is a ripper, always running like a fast break. And I love the way her ass shake. Jumping like the sideshow. Dip, dip, fast break. She be killing the scene. And her ass is off the Richter. Earthquake in the jeans. Good game for a sexy young thing Sucking on a lollipop with a candy tongue ring Okay, and a happy birthday to you, Duck Doja A.K.A. Darnell, Trapped in the Hood. Check out Duck Doja on YouTube. 11.37 now. Do some labor history in two. September 16th. 1946. And something and that I wanted to continue, and I met more and more people who had a... Labor History in Two coming up. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1945. That was the day oil workers walked off the job. The strike soon spread to 20 states and involved more than 43,000 workers at 22 oil companies. 
After years of wartime wage freezes, the union's demand was 52 for 40. 52 hours pay for 40 hours work. Workers okay. demanded a 30% pay increase, shift differentials, and an eventual return to the 36-hour work week. The strike began in Michigan at the Ciccone Vacuum Refinery in Trenton. From there, it spread to Golf, Sinclair, and Shell. By October 4th, President Truman signed Executive Order 9639, allowing the Secretary of the Navy to seize petroleum operations. The Oil Workers International Union CIO immediately called off the strike and ordered its members back to work. A month later, the Navy had still not relinquished control of operations. The union considered Truman's seizure a betrayal. There was no mechanism put in place to settle the dispute or consider workers' demands. By January 1946, the oil panel created by the Secretary of Labor finally awarded oil workers an 18% wage increase. Though disappointed, the union considered it a victory. They asserted the strike action was significant on a number of levels. The first nationwide industry strike had just forced the oil companies to meet with the union for the very first time. The OWI believed the groundwork for industry-wide bargaining had been finally established. It had been the first post-war strike and had forced the government to begin moving away from wartime wage controls. Of the post-war strikes, it won the largest pay increase. And importantly, it broke the power of Standard Oil to dictate wages to the industry through its dealings with its independent union. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1970. That was the day 350,000 GM workers kicked off a 67-day strike. It was the largest auto strike since the end of World War II. According to historian Jefferson Cowie, it was likely the costliest. In his book, Stayin' Alive, Cowie notes that the strike cost GM a billion dollars in profits and nearly bankrupted the union. But he adds it, quote, lacked the proletarian drama that fired journalists' hearts. For Cowie, it was an example of labor management cooperation a civilized affair. But historian Jeremy Breacher points out that the Wall Street Journal drew different conclusions about the strike at the time. In a series of articles, the paper noted that labor management cooperation during the strike served ironically to get workers back to work. A long and costly strike served a number of functions. It wore down strikers' expectations. After eight or ten weeks, workers would be amiable to terms they initially rejected. It also provided an escape valve for built-up frustration over working conditions. And a long strike served to coalesce internal union factions around a common enemy, strengthening the union's leadership in the process. For management, a long and costly strike lent hope that workers would be reluctant to strike in the future. But Breacher notes these ideas about workers' motives nearly backfired. Strikers simply wouldn't budge on their demands. They made gains in wages, pensions, and cost of living allowances. And they were finally able to retire after 30 years. But critics argued the agreement fell short of initial demands, and workers lacked more say in the workplace. This would be a key issue in the many strikes and wildcats in the years to come. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at laborhistoryin2. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. 
On this day in labor history, the year was 1917. That was the day Illinois Governor Frank Loudon hoped to meet with striking streetcarmen in an effort to end their strike. Transit workers in Springfield, the state's capital, had been off the job since July 25th. But the strike had gained so much support that Springfield had now erupted into a full-blown general strike. According to the Sangamon County Historical Society, thousands of union members shut down mines, railroads, bakeries, restaurants, laundries, and construction sites following the violent crackdown of a pro-labor march by state police and militia. The march had been scheduled for September 9th. The union hoped to show support for the striking streetcarmen after a number of clashes between strikers and state militia. After they were denied a permit, many of the 50 or so unions decided to march anyway and were attacked. Some were shot. More than 40 suffered bayonet-inflicted injuries. By the 11th, most everyone in Springfield had walked off the job. Striking women shoe factory workers stopped a streetcar, pulling the scab drivers off by force. By the end of the week, as many as 12,000 members of 34 unions in the city were on strike. When telephone operators walked off the job, they paralyzed communications of the scab streetcar drivers and the state National Guardsmen. The streetcar strikers refused to meet with the governor until troops were withdrawn from the city. The governor insisted disloyal, pro-German forces were at fault for the labor troubles. By the 16th, the streetcarmen agreed to negotiate and the general strike was called off. But the company refused to meet striker demands for recognition and higher wages or even take them back. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com. That's Rick Smith's feature, Labor History in Two. And um, at least one of those strikes um, brought my attention to a period in American history when people, working people, coming back from the war, it was a war, remember, against fascism. So... We were all anti-fascists at that time, everyone who participated in that war against Germany and Japan and Italy. When workers came back, they expected to see changes. Blacks and Chicanos, poor whites, expected to have a bigger say in what was happening in the country. After all, hadn't they been the ones who defeated the Germans. This was a time of a massive um, anti-labor, anti-communism, and that, that's how they did it. That's how the big com companies did it, was by calling everyone a communist. Anyway, this is a B, and it's time to go. And... Take a look around you. Look at the Chicanos in your life. They were here before you. Take a look at the land around here. This was part of Mexico for the longest time. This is the bee signing off. Hey, where did we go? Black, black.
Tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of Mutiny Radio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> Coming soon, the 6th Annual Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival. Six venues, 24 shows, 7 days, 75 comics from all over the United States at amazing local venues, Asiento, Atlas Cafe, El Rio, Milk Bar, OMG, and The Bar. 
on Dolores. Special headliner shows at El Rio, Thursday night, 7 and 9 o'clock, featuring Scott Capuro. Headliner, amazing comedian, also Andy Iwancio out of Seattle here for the 6th Annual Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival. All tickets are $10, except the headlining show, which are 20 You can find all of the shows on Mutiny Radio's Eventbrite. Reserve them now. And don't miss out. 2021, the 6th Annual Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival. Black Block, a novel about protest from Sanjuro, a sample. The walk from Union Square to the bar is a long way for a drink, so you want a few stopovers. You get warmed up at Lefty Duels, an old-time tavern with memorabilia and a menu from another century. Then a Market Street dive to rub elbows with the hoi polloi. Next is a Folsom Leather Bar. The dark goth soundtrack is a refreshing change from the usual jukebox anthems, but you must avert your eyes lest you observe gentlefolk in flagrante. That means fucking. Tonight, none of these places are open unless looters are broken in. The city is shut down because of the riots. Thank you. Find me at sanjurorider.com and Black Block is on Amazon. Time to time, I've given it a thought or two. You know, if you go to Joke Workshop, 
there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things, dude, before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dang nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! <laughs> LSD fap acid fapping fapping acid acid fapping fapping acid fap 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 acid. Thank you. That song is called Acid and Fapping. Good evening there, my friends here at MutinyRadio.fm. Chester Cashcock here, and giving you my love and regard as well as movies over there. And uh, I just wanted to let you guys know that any time I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. I mean, if anyone who knows anything about comedy knows that Pamtastic's books the best of San Francisco and Beyond's Underground comics. It's a great showcase, and they have a fun time at Pamtastic's Deep in the Mission District, where you can laugh off your tushy for a mere $5 every Friday to 10 p.m. And I laugh because $5, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with. So to laugh it off for a mere $5 is indubitious. But if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, well, don't even worry. Don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show and giggle in the comfort of anywhere, like your Aspen summer home on the mountain ridge with the kayak feeling. So then all you got to do is just go to podcastics.pcrcollective.org slash comedy clubhouse, or you can listen live every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. as your host Pam Benjamin brings you the best comedy from San Francisco and beyond the universe. And what's better than the universe? <laughs> it's a cash cock, honey. <laughs> yeah. I was just leaving the theater. <laughs> and shows at venues all over San Francisco and the Bay Area. Subliminal SF is here to destroy your sense of normalcy and plant ideas in your skull to make you cooler and a more awesome person. Check out all the badass products at subliminalsf.myshopify.com. That's subliminalsf.myshopify.com. And experience Subliminal SF.
The Ministry of Lava manages our national lava resources to ensure that we will always have a steady supply of lava to operate the nation's active volcanoes, which in turn power our cities and methamphetamine labs. As a matter of national security, we need to reduce our dependence on 